Welcome to the First Pres podcast, which features the message from this past Sunday's worship. If you would like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, 10, and 11 o'clock. You can learn more about First Pres at www.first-pres.org. That is good news. We're wired for good news. Thank you. Um, Today in our sermon series, we're talking about our souls needing a center. Wondering if you ever wonder about the center of things, like where the center is. Like where's the center of the United States? Does anybody know where the center of the United States is? Kansas. In 1918, the geographical center of the U.S. was placed just outside Lebanon, Kansas. There's a little monument there and a chapel letting you know that you're at the center of the U.S. But in 1959, you may not know this, but with the addition of Alaska and Hawaii, the center moved a bit north to pasture land just outside of Belfouche, South Dakota. Anybody been there? Oh, wow. That's amazing. Center, that's the new center of uh, the United States. If you expand your search to North America, you have to move a little further north to Rugby, North Dakota. Okay, people are excited about Rugby, North Dakota. Um, Interesting, and if you head overseas to Europe, there are many countries that claim to have the center within their borders. Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Estonia. Each of those places is marked with a monument that claims to be the center of Europe. But the Guinness Book of World Records records a small village in Lithuania to be the true geographical center of Europe. And here's the monument there. But even the Book of Records footnotes that depending on the methodology used, other places could be the center. So it's still up for grabs. But, you know, to find the center of a country or a continent is kind of an interesting exercise, but is knowing about the center of something really that important? Purdue University thinks it is, and they have discovered that it takes 364 licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. (laughs) But you need to know that that was done with a licking machine, which you're welcome for that. I wondered what in the world is that? There it is. I know, gross. But actually, when they used real people, actual volunteers, it only took 252 licks to get to the center. All right. But what about things of eternal significance? What about our lives, our souls? We've been looking all summer at what a soul needs. A soul needs a savior, needs healing mercies, a purpose, rest. So today we get right to the center of the soul and ponder the claim that the soul needs a center. And just like the many countries in Europe boldly proclaiming themselves to be the center, there are many things, many things in our lives trying trying to convince us that they are the rightful center of our souls. And each one can be quite persuasive. But, But is there a true center for our souls, a place where our souls can rest assured, be content, be anchored and safe? I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 12, We'll start with verse 22, go through 30, as we read God's word together. Listen to the word. Then they, that's the crowd, brought him a demon, brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. 
All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray. Lord, it is our desire to hear your voice today, to be gathered together with you. So draw us in by your word that we might know you more deeply. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So our passage today begins with a healing. Not unusual for Matthew. This particular healing seems to be part of many healings that Jesus has been doing as he shows himself to be the servant of God who is bringing healing mercies to those in need. And so this man is brought to Jesus and we're told that he is blind and unable to speak. Matthew tells us that he is demon-possessed, that his ailments are a result of the evil and brokenness of the world, of the active work of the evil one whose purpose it is to drain the very life out of God's creation. And Jesus heals him so the man can both see and talk. And we're told in the passage that the people around this healing see the work of the healer and they're astonished, they're amazed. They stand in wonder and they're asking the question we read, is it possible, could it be that this man is the son of David? Which you may know, but that's a messianic question. Is this the promised Messiah? Could this be the one? Could it be? The people are drawn to Jesus. And it's moments like these scattered throughout the gospels that we see an entire people being opened up to the work of the spirit in their midst. But as the passage continues, this hopeful possibility comes somewhat into question, for often when hope is nearby, we can sometimes expect to find another group of contrarians seeing things from a different angle. The Pharisees, or the serious, as Dale Bruner calls them, weigh in on the situation. You know, as we follow through the gospel, the Pharisees seem to always be nearby, kind of murmuring in the corner, planning little schemes, trying to undo the work that Jesus is doing. And in the early chapters of the Gospels, they, they seem kind of annoying. They misunderstand at every turn. But at this point in the story, their words are becoming very serious. In fact, they are dead serious about stamping out the light and hope that Jesus is bringing. And they begin to spread the teaching that Jesus' work comes from a dark place. The Pharisees reframe the entire scene, not by denying Jesus' power to heal, but by questioning where his power comes from. Jesus, they say, drives out demons by the prince of darkness, by Beelzebul. 
Now, all through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly pointing to God's work in the world, showing that his healings are not simply healings, but signs that the kingdom of God is breaking in. The Pharisees, on the other hand, attempt to offer a different explanation. Jesus' healings, they now contend, are signs that the kingdom of Satan is at work. It's a very serious charge. Last week, we read together that the Pharisees are now busy plotting Jesus' death. And theologians help us understand how making this claim that Jesus' power is from Satan helps that crusade along. If the Pharisees can plant the seed that Jesus is using dark spirits or sorcery to heal, that itself in itself is worthy of capital punishment. So their claim is deliberate, it's divisive, and it's calculated. As they willingly and purposely point away from Jesus, Dale Bruner reminds us to be on guard against any theology or ideology, however impressive, that distracts from confidence in Jesus as ultimate. Teaching that withdraws faith from Jesus is against the Spirit. Beware of anyone who seeks to erode your confidence in Christ alone, who seeks to move you off the center and away from Christ. But as the Pharisees spread their poisonous reframe of what's going on, Jesus enters into that conversation, responds calmly, challenging their words. He once again pulls the focus back to the kingdom of God, reframing the situation again, and his words are just as serious as theirs. Verse 25, Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Many think of these words as belonging to Abraham Lincoln in his speech of 1858 about the, fu the future of the fragile union of the North and South, and that's, that's right. Similar words were used by Lincoln in his speech as he tried to win a Senate seat. He was not successful in that run, but he was very prophetic about a nation divided over slavery being unable to hold itself together. Lincoln was quoting Jesus in Matthew 12 right here, and both he and Jesus are saying similar things. It is not the nature of a kingdom to be divided. If Satan is casting out Satan, the kingdom is divided and will fall. The Pharisees' argument does not hold together. And then he tells a short parable to bring the truth home. Let me put it this way. He says, how can anyone, verse 29, enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Parables themselves are a type of reframing. They push us to think differently about something, to make deeper connections, to see something from a different angle. So in this little parable, who is the strong man? Who's been plundered? Who's being tied up? What is Jesus saying? Last week, we looked at the first part of Isaiah 42, which Matthew quotes just before this healing. Let's go a little further in Isaiah 42 to verse 22 to help us understand this parable. Isaiah writes, but this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. The strong man 
is the devil. And he has plundered and looted the people of God, taking possession of them. He has set up his house, not only in the man who couldn't see or speak, but also in the people of God. Who will rescue the people from the strong man? There is only one who can rescue, who can tie up the devil, take back what the devil has stolen, plunder what the devil has taken captive, and free the people of God. The point is this. The devil is strong, yes. But only one stronger than the devil can defeat him. Jesus is taking back what Satan has stolen one by one, life by life, person by person. Jesus is stronger than the strong man. Where is the strong man at work in your life? Where is sin getting the best of you? Where is it pulling you off center? Where do you feel ungrounded, shifting, divided, or scattered? Where is the strong man at work? And where in your life does the stronger man need to break in and defeat sin? Jesus is very clear in this passage that there are two kingdoms at work in our lives, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And just to be clear, they are not equal. One is stronger than the other. And as Jesus speaks throughout this passage, the goals of each kingdom become crystal clear. The central work of the evil one is strong, no doubt. He divides, he ruins, possesses, scatters, he disintegrates life, and he has absolutely no interest in your well-being. But the central work of Jesus is stronger. He heals, he gathers, he sets free, he strengthens, he brings wholeness and an integrated life. Jesus is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb and he is the one knitting you together still, piece by piece, back together, strong, integrated, so that all is well with your soul. The scriptures teach us much about a life centered on God. From Psalm 62, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. The psalmist speaks truth. My soul finds rest in God alone. Only in Jesus do we find our souls centered, undivided, at rest. Jesus affirms again and again the steadiness and firm foundation of a life centered on him. Therefore, any, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. So many voices call out to our souls, build your life here. Organize your life around these principles. You struggle with this? Well, then you need to work harder on these things. What is calling out to you today, begging you to put it at the center of your soul? Anything that pulls you away from faith in Christ alone is a pile of sand. It will not hold your soul because it cannot hold your soul. 
But the Spirit of God calls to your soul, whispers to your heart, deep calls to deep. Only in God is my soul at rest. Only Jesus can hold your soul, be its true center. So a few thoughts for you to take home and ponder from our passage today as we, as we work through it. I'll call them signs that you are centered on Jesus. Number one, you're leaning into him. In our passage, we have two pictures of two very different postures. There are those who are leaning into the kingdom of God and those who are leaning away from the kingdom of God. Wherever Jesus is speaking, teaching, healing, showing up, those around him are opening up to him and the possibility of who he is. Could this be the one that we've been waiting for? There's energy, a hope, a simplicity, a priority, a childlike anticipation, a leaning in to the spirit of God. John Ortberg writes in his book, Soul Keeping, peoples whose soul, souls are rooted in a center find it brings clarity to their decisions. There is an ease in life when we are leaning into Christ. We aren't blown around by every temptation, every whim, every voice that calls out for us to notice it. There's a clarity to our steps. Well, last week was Shark Week. And if you don't know what that is, I do not have time today to help you. <laughs> I'll simply invite you next summer to lean in. But every year, as I watch Shark Week, I learn something that's really important to my life. Like Michael Phelps can swim faster than a reef shark, but not faster than a white shark or a hammerhead. Or that bull sharks, very important, can live in both fresh water and salt water. These things are really vital for us to know. <laughs> Here's what I learned this year, that there really is something called a fish magnet. It's called a fish aggregating device, but it's a magnet. A fish magnet is a magnet that draws fish in towards it so that fishermen have the possibility of getting a larger catch in their nets. Now, besides the ethical feeling you may have about this practice, we kind of felt like uh, total cheating, but what do we know? Our souls lean towards Jesus like a magnet because Jesus is our soul's true center. So are you leaning in to Jesus this morning? Are you allowing his word to frame your day today and to draw you close? A second sign that your soul is centered on Jesus is this. You experience regularly awe and wonder about the life that you've been given. Your imagination is alive with possibilities because you're close to the one who created your imagination, who gave you the ability to dream, who fills you with wonder and never ceases to do miracles and wonders in your life that you never thought possible. We read in our passage that the people, when they saw Jesus, were amazed. They were filled with wonder. The disturbing thing about the Pharisees is that they are never astonished or amazed at anything Jesus does. Their imaginations seem dead, frozen, hardened. As I tucked my daughter to sleep the other night, I made this random comment because I just felt like I needed to that magic is not real. 
And she looked at me with consternation and replied, Mom, you're killing my imagination. <laughs> Sorry. But when our souls are centered on Christ, we are full of wonder and awe. When was the last time you looked, you stopped and looked at a sunset, and you were overcome by the incredible beauty of what you saw, almost moved to tears? When was the last time you prayed for someone who was hurting, and you were given a beautiful picture of them clothed in wholeness? When we're close to Jesus, we're filled with wonder and awe. Our hearts are open, receptive. Life is too short to dwell in cynicism and hard-heartedness. When we are centered on Jesus, our amazement of God increases, and a childlike wonder invades our souls. And finally, sign number three, gathering with Jesus. This passage ends with severe words from Jesus. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So our lives are either about gathering people with Jesus or scattering them away from Jesus. It's clear from the scriptures which kingdom is about which movement. I've talked before about the importance of the family rhythm of gathering, and I'll highlight it just again. Each year, more and more research shows that the, one of the most important practices a family can do together is gather weekly for family dinners, and the more frequently, the better. I mention this because we're getting ready to head back to the school, to school year, where anything and everything has the potential to become more important than the togetherness of the family. That scattering effect takes place after August 15th. So now, before all that rushes in, make decisions to mark off your calendar when family dinners are going to happen. And when I talk about this practice, it's not just for the family, family unit that lives together. This is really for all of us. Who is your family group this year? We all need to be on the lookout for who doesn't have a family group yet. You know, college students will be arriving soon in this place who are far from home. There are those who are living on their own and in need of table fellowship. Let's gather together. Gathering. When Jesus is at the center, we gather together. Let's gather together and, of course, let there be food. When our souls are centered on Jesus, we can't help but bring people together to Christ's table, to be healed by him, to have an encounter with him. When Jesus is at the center, we gather with Jesus gathering up those around us, bringing them with us to Jesus. So again, when Jesus is at our center, we lean in to Jesus. We're filled with astonishment and wonder, and we become gatherers, bringing people with us to Jesus. I want to close this morning with a prayer written a very, very long time ago. This prayer was put down on paper in the 1100s, by Isaac of Stella, and it's based on Psalm 62, my soul finds rest in God alone. So I want to invite you to close your eyes, to take a moment, to breathe, to allow the presence of Christ to reframe this moment for you as a kingdom moment. I want to invite you to lean in to Christ, your center.
May the Son of God, who is already formed in you, grow in you, so that for you he will become immeasurable, and that in you he will become laughter, exultation, the fullness of joy, which no one can take from you. Lord Jesus, it is our desire that you be our center, our anchor, our rest, and our rock. In the powerful name of Christ, we offer this prayer this morning. Amen. Thanks for listening to our First Prez podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at www.first-prez.org.